learning should keep going. And the only way it's going to keep going is if you have the infrastructures in place from a technology point of view, from a, a skilled teacher a training right. point of view, and uh, the wherewithal for students uh, to avail themselves of it. Welcome to Reality Check, a weekly podcast about anything and everything having to do with education. I'm Jeannie Allen, founder and CEO of the Center for Education Reform. We chose the name Reality Check because a lot of what you read about education these days is often wrong or misleading. If you want to know what's really going on in American education, from K through career, you're going to need a Reality Check. Thank you so much for being with us today. Kevin Chavis um, is the president uh, of K-12, president of academics, policy, and schools at K-12. He's also a member of the CER board of directors, so I'm a little bit biased, but when I wanted to make sure I had people who not only were a savvy political and practitioners and smart as whip people. Um, Kevin was the first person I called. K-12, as some of you know, is a leading technology-based education company. Uh, Kevin oversees all the services the company provides. Um, But I met him when he was running the education committee of the DC City Council. Um, He was instrumental in bringing about new thought, new thinking, Um, new change making in Washington, D.C. that has helped reinvigorate the nation's capital um, and taken it from a place that most people didn't want to live to one where people can't get out and are dying to to get in here. Um, So with that, Kevin, welcome. Thank you. Yeah, we've known each other a long time. You look the same. I don't. So Ah. what's with that? I don't know. I don't get that. Well, Uh, you've got your COVID beard, too, working. (laughs) I do. So good to be with you, Jenny. You too. Now, did I surprise you about your book? No, I mean, yes, you did surprise me, but you're right in as much as you and I were talking the whole time. I was telling you, I want to do this book and feature these stories. I'm tired of just the policy discussions. As you know, one of my biggest uh, concerns and criticisms of our movement, those of us who are involved in, in, in educating kids, is often, too often, we look at it as numbers on a page. And I wrote that book really just to tell the stories of kids, 10 kids who overcame incredible challenges because they were determined to get their education. And far too many administrators may look at them as just a number, another number on the page. Who was the boy you told me about that I'll never forget? I didn't look it up this morning. The one who stayed in the rafters in school at Isn't night? that a, it's incredible? You know, I will say that I changed the locations and the names, uh, but it was a young man who um, the administrators found was living in his high school because he had been he was homeless. He'd had challenges with his mother. His father was in jail. And he was just a couple months away from graduating, three months away. He had nowhere to go. He didn't want to go in the foster care system because he was determined he was going to be the first one in his family to graduate from high school. He was going to go to the military. So he literally was staying in the roof of his high school. And uh, the janitor found out because they followed him down the hall. He was there for, he was always at the school. 
it would be the girls' basketball practice. He'd be in the gym watching and cheering the girls on. It'd be a community meeting. He would be there. And one night, a janitor and a, and a counselor followed him down the hall, up the steps to the roof, and saw hangers on pipes. And he was living in his school. Oh, gosh. Incredible story. I'll never forget but, that story. But that kid made it. He did it. It's amazing. So Voices of Determination, Children That Defy the Odds, pick it up. You will want to pick this up as well as his novels. But this isn't about you, Kevin. Um, <laughs> but it is about the great work that you have been doing and leading. And I say that um, with all honesty. I have been... Um, mesmerized by the transformation of so much of the work that you've been doing. And so why don't we just start off by you sharing with some of the folks out there um, from all over the country, all different walks of life, what it is that you guys did and do at K-12 on a regular basis, but did to kind of address this crisis, because that's really what we're here to talk about. Yeah, well, K-12 has been in existence for um, 20 years. It started out as a company that really was a curriculum company that tailored its offerings toward homeschool parents. And by the way, the definition of homeschool has now totally changed. The old traditional definition is that parents took full custody and control of their kids' educational experience. There were no teachers other than the parent, and they used curriculum to help with that. And uh, over time, though, as these uh, opportunities emerged state by state, uh, more and more school districts and more and more families saw the, the virtual experience as a way to help educate kids uh, that, that may have challenges and couldn't thrive in a brick and mortar environment. Kids who, you know, uh, suffer from autism, kids who had medical, physical challenges. So over the last 10 years or so, K-12, the demographic of K-12 students have changed from kids who a lot were uh, sort of self-starters, uh, academically driven to those who uh, have a lot of challenges. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting mix. And what we do is we provide full-time online virtual education opportunities for 120,000 kids around the country. We also provide curriculum and teaching training and support to over 2,000 uh, school districts in the country. And as you might imagine during this time, Jeannie, um, we are obviously, uh, since we're the nation's leader in, in offering these kind of services, you know, we're having a, a, a lot of exposure because parents are looking for alternative options to help them and help guide them through this, this troubling and challenging time. So are they doing it individually? Are they coming to you? Or are they going through schools somewhere? Kind of who's, who's part of the K-12 delivery system? It's a great point. So we get our students uh, through a number of different means. Some school districts will refer uh, kids to us. Uh, you know, some school districts view us as a form of alternative education for kids who can't thrive in a brick and mortar environment. But the largest share of our, our students come from parents who call our enrollment line because they either the, the brick and mortar environment their kid is in doesn't work for them or they they're, they're looking for some more personalized educational experience. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you, uh, I listen to enrollment calls all the time to me. I'm surprised by how many almost 
half of the parents who call our enrollment line call because their kids are bullied. And it's all about safety. And there is a growing number of families out there with the school shootings, the nat natural disasters from hurricanes and fires, and now with COVID, a lot of families are, are deathly afraid uh, for their kids' safety. And we get a lot of calls along those lines. And you know, when they sign up with us, and we're in over 30, 35 states, we have full-time teachers that can work with them in their live class connect sessions with, with peers in like a Zoom setting. Then they have individual instruction uh, that takes place. And then they have individual time where they have to work on their courses. And, um, and then they have to take tests like every other student would in any other traditional educational classroom. And it does work. I mean, a lot of, for a lot of kids who cannot thrive in that, that traditional setting, the kids that we serve really enjoy the experience. You know, I have to tell you, there's all these misunderstandings um, or misnomers, if you will, around online, which is part of the reason we really wanted you to help um, educate us. And, and some of the discussion out there now, I mean, obviously, this is not easy for anyone who's never pursued this naturally, that didn't call you because something was happening or just didn't need that difference. So I won't even just say alternative, but didn't need the different thing from what they typically get, right? But there's this impression that the student, and this would be really hard for the student that doesn't have the people around, the student's just sitting at a desk, looking at a screen, trying to figure it out on their own. And one thing you said to me in our prep call the other day is you started talking to me about kind of the training and the interaction. And I just think, you know, this is not uh, purely subjective, but I just think for folks out there, they need to understand the granularity between the process of education that's going on so they can make an informed decision. So help yeah, us with I think that. you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And, and keep in mind that teaching in a, virtu a virtual classroom is an art form. Uh, and I will venture to say that a great teacher in a brick and mortar classroom can be a great teacher in a virtual classroom as well, but they need the training. And chances are, if you don't get that training, you will not be a great teacher if you migrate from brick and mortar to the virtual classroom. Right. So what does that training look like? Well, we have a, we've established a partnership with Southern New Hampshire University, so we purposely had them work with us and look at hundreds and hundreds of hours of some of our best teachers, some of our worst teachers, if you will. And we now develop a rubric for what an effective teacher looks like in a virtual education classroom. And we offer training. And by effective teacher, it means how do you engage students? Because a lot of people feel like it's sort of a myth that, you know, you know, one parent said to me, you know, working class parent in, uh, in Arizona, well, I was a little concerned. I went in a computer teaching my kids. Well, actually, a computer won't teach your child because there is a trained teacher who knows how to engage students, who knows how to group kids according to proficiency level. If you have a computer screen in our Class Connect sessions, our best teachers are able to group kids in a box with a, for the, you know, a group of kids who have some of the bigger challenges, kids who are at task, kids who are advanced, and then through peer-to-peer -peer interaction, moving kids from one box to the next, engaging in, in the use of creative technologies. You know, a lot of our classes now are using artificial intelligence, virtual reality, 
we, we, we engage in gamification. So when kids are studying and they, they're doing a math problem or being quizzed to, to test their uh, analytical comprehension on a reading program, then they'll get badges and coins, similar to like the video games when they go to the next level, all with an eye toward making sure that this is an, an engaging, exciting, and frankly, fun experience. And I do think that Jeannie, the last point, which is really a big one, it's sometimes hard for us who went through the traditional experience to understand that the world in, of education is going through a huge migration. We're going from a migration where the teacher was the end all, know all, be all, the deliverer of content. And in classrooms you and I sat in, we had to listen to the teacher, right. write what the teacher said, down and then be tested on it based on what the teacher told us. But now the future of education, this is the content holder right here. Kids don't need a deliverer of content in the old traditional teaching way. They need a guide, right. someone who can help them manage through the fog of information out there and through our virtual experience in, in training the teachers that, that help kids in terms of having a personalized learning experience and managing the content that's out there, it's, it's a wholly different experience. And uh, I also think that for the kids who have been through it and it's, when it's done the right way, it's, it's mutually rewarding because they have become a part of a learning community where it's fun as opposed to the drudgery of, well, you know, I don't know if it works for me. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that all brick and mortar classrooms are like that. There's some great right. brick and mortar, right. a, a whole lot. But I do think that in terms of meeting kids where they are, this merging right. of technology and With best individualization, right. Individualization, and that's the future. That's can, the future. Can be happening. I was chuckling too, as you were talking about the class you sit in where they talk at you and you respond. And then I was gonna say, and some of us get kicked out because we don't respond <laughs> fast enough. I don't know yeah. about anyone else. Yeah, or, or maybe like you, Jenny, you were responding too much. You were trying to teach the class for the teacher and that's probably why they kicked you out. That is, that is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if somebody, you know, one of the questions out there, and I think this is important, it comes up every single time, is about um, special needs. How could you possibly teach special needs? So is there, is there a response to that? And then also we've got a couple of people, and I know we're going to take questions later, but I just think it's important now. What's the teacher rubric you're referring to? Kind of a, how do you share that? Or is that only for the teachers going through the Southern Hampshire program? Well, we actually are offering... Uh, teaching, uh, free teaching webinars uh, is, is part of our response to COVID. Uh, we've done it for school districts, we've done it for individual teachers. Great. So uh, we, we offer that in, in our website under our, if you just uh, k12.com and look okay. at our COVID response, you can get links to some of our webinars on teaching practices. A number of teachers have availed themselves of that and and they really are, are excited to learn about this new approach. In terms of special needs, um, I can tell you with the challenges that we have, because only 15% of our students who enter uh, our schools are at grade level when they first join. If they're wow. with us for three years or more, then they see dramatic increase, but you know, a lot of them are behind. But one area, the one area where we really have phenomenal success 
is uh, special education. And it, it, it makes sense if you think about it, because our program is, uh, is sort of uh, grounded on the belief that personalized learning is the key. And when you have an individual education plan, an IEP, then it calls out for a personalized learning experience. So online, we have a lot of kids with IEPs. Our special ed compliance is, is really phenomenal around the country. And that's because we're able, teachers are able to engage students one-on-one -on -one and, and help them, guide them through uh, the best way to use the technology to get them and keep them excited about learning. And at the same time, uh, make sure that they're, they're growing academically at the pace that is dictated by whatever their challenge is. So I don't know what happened to his face. Um, yes. Oh, there you are. I'm back. Uh, yes. So I don't. So I don't. Um, I don't know that you know. You guys didn't have to really change a lot, right? Because you were already doing this. Whereas everybody else had a scramble to figure out what remote looked like. Is there anything differently that you did? That's, you know, because of COVID, or were you just kind of business as usual, if you will? Well, we, we did not have to change anything that we do subsequently. We just want to make sure that we do it better and make sure we can absorb the scale, which really leads me to, you know, uh, the challenges that I know the school districts are having. And I say quite candidly, I've spoken, uh, you know, to, to a lot of people and, and a lot of interviews on this, that, you know, the, the three areas where school districts are having the most challenges are areas that we have dealt with every day and we continue to improve upon uh, because of the number of kids we serve. One is having a secure platform. You know, many uh, school districts who don't have a robust online offering, if they don't have a secure platform, you know, even in these Zoom calls now, you know, you read and hear about, you know, hackers jumping in. You have to make sure that your IT infrastructure is strong enough to have secure platforms for thousands of kids to use it with teachers at the same time and many school districts don't have that so they need to have a secure platform second they need to have right content uh, school districts are used to having curriculum and curriculum for math or english or fifth or sixth grade what have you but the curriculum has to be adaptable to the online experience our curriculum is is tailor-made so that you know, and, and, and we have what we call a recommender. So when a kid is reading, let's say it's fifth grade English class, if the kid seems a little stuck or something, then there's a pop-up that says, oh, it looks like you may have a question here and they'll send them to some, some other uh, uh, link that will help explain the passage a little easier. You know, uh, this idea of having curriculum that's tailored toward, uh, you know, the virtual world is something that school districts need to really uh, prepare for and I think develop more fully. But probably the most important thing is something I touched on earlier, and that is uh, teacher training. Uh, yeah. As I said, a great teacher in brick and mortar can be a great teacher online, but a great teacher in brick and mortar who isn't trained to teach online will not be a great teacher. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that with these, there's some examples where school districts are doing it well, but all too often you hear the stories of a teacher gives a PDF to kids, you know, we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. That isn't great teaching online. And I think that this teacher training 
is something that school districts need to really, really focus on. Because my fear is that many schools will not open in September. They may not open till January. And, you know, we really have to make sure that, that uh, our kids are still learning, even while we go through this national crisis. So have you seen a difference in, in school districts um, that step up to the plate and those who don't? What are the distinguishing characteristics between those who kind of, who are calling you and others, or those who are just kind of sitting waiting for like this too shall pass? Well, a number of schools, uh, to their credit, a number of school districts, a number of private schools, a number of charter schools uh, had some uh, type of online offering beforehand. So they were forward looking and they're doing much better. I mean, folks like Eva, Eva Moskowitz. I mean, she had an online and I talked to Eva about a year, year and a half ago about what she was doing, what we were doing. We shared uh, information, best practice, if you will. And, and she hasn't missed a beat. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a couple other school districts that have done that. Um, and, but those where there's sort of the feeling that they can go back to the way it always has been, it's just not, it's just not feasible. And if you have your head stuck in the sand, there is a new normal. And I actually think in terms of where we're headed, that even if schools, let's say every single school district opens in, in the fall, what if there's an outbreak in October with the fifth grade teacher in your school? Right. I mean, so you, you have to, I think, in, in terms of emergency planning and preparedness, I think school districts need to have a solid, clear plan on how they deal with the platform issues, deal with curriculum issues, and train teachers, even if they know they're going to open in the fall. And secondly, I think that the ultimate end game for education is probably a, a, a more hybrid form of blended. Because if there is an outbreak and you can't have 20 kids or 25 kids in class, maybe you have 10 or 12, then you're talking about rolling enrollments where some kids come in the morning, some in the afternoon, they're six to 10 feet apart. And then the rep, when they're not in school, they're, they're learning online, it's blended. Right. I think that ultimately that's where education may be headed because the personalized learning experience where teachers are guides and not content deliverers is ultimately where kids are going to want to want to be. And expand on the future, you know, the future vision a little bit too, Kevin. When I think about when I was raising my kids, like most parents, we all cry at snow days, right? And especially if you're in the Washington area and you have a snow day for one inch of splash. <laughs> but, but we used to think to ourselves like, okay, you've been out of school now a few days. You've lost that time and you've got to make it up at the end. So when I hear you talking and when I think about the conversations we're all having across the country and some of us are throwing out crazy and big ideas like having a backpack attached to every child and they show up someplace, how, how difficult is it to just simply say, okay, the fifth grade teacher, you know, God forbid, has a, um, you know, fault, gets COVID and can't stay in the classroom. Why can't kids just transition to still learning? Like, what does that take physically to get that student just to kind of not skip a beat? Yeah, and that's why I think this is where the planning is so important. 
you can't turn a switch off and on to make it happen, which I think that's why so many school districts have been caught unaware because they, they're used to, to moving in the same way, in the same pace, the same approach. Uh, but what needs to happen, frankly, is that part of the planning has, has to be that you will have, each school district should have, should commit to some type of online experience for children. And I think that they should, should uh, uh, socialize that or begin to engage in that in fall, even if their doors are open uh, and all the kids come in. Because when there is that, that uh, national crisis or the health scare or the national disaster or some crazy thing in this crazy world we're in now, Learning should keep going. And the only way it's gonna keep going is if you have the infrastructures in place from a technology point of view, from a, a skilled teacher a training point of view, and the uh, wherewithal for students uh, to avail themselves of it. Now, one big barrier that we've got to deal with, and you, you have been out in front on this for many years, is uh, the broadband issue and the internet deserts. Right. Because there are a lot of rural uh, folks in rural America and in, in parts of, of, some, of, of some urban areas where they don't, they aren't wired and don't have the technology. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, what I have said publicly is, you know, there should be a, the, the, the federal government and part of this emergency preparedness planning and infrastructure readiness that has become a commitment to the, the, the Congress and, and the government has made since 9-11, that we, we have to make sure our infrastructure needs are met in the, in the wake of any crisis. Part of that should be just broadband closing the gap. That's an education equity issue. And I think there should be dedicated stimulus funding to make sure that each state closes that gap, working with certain technology companies so that all of America is wired because all of America needs access to technology going forward. Absolutely, and you just uh, answered one of the questions, and speaking of which, um, why don't we bring in uh, my uh, friend and colleague, Michael Musanti, you know him, you love him, to help yes. with some of the questions. Um, but as he's coming on, let me just you know reflect on that for a second. There's all this stimulus money in states, Kevin, and I'm hearing even like even the governors with the most progressive thinking around them kind of aren't really knowing what to do with it. And so I fear that unless there's some real, you know, determination to help them understand that, yes, they should be funding those gaps, not just funding the systems, right? Because we know a lot of people, you know, and this is a bipartisan conversation, right? You've been around lots of different people, parties, but there are a whole bunch of people just demanding that we right, send money right. to the systems. So right. how do we how do we solve that? Yeah, I think that um, similar to uh, race to the top, if you recall, where everyone said we're going to use this money a certain way, but it ended up being sort of a catch-all to fund teachers and fund pay raises and fund infrastructure needs that. Uh, you know, the Fed just said, just here, take the money. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, we've seen some of this with the uh, CARES money and the, the stimulus money because school districts know they're going to be facing a, a deficit. Those deficits could be anywhere from 5 to 20, 25% of their budgets. 
um, and, and, and they're a little afraid of what that will look like. And for that reason, um, I think that the feds were hesitant to put strings on the money that they gave to the states. To me, I think that's okay to a point, but there should be some strings attached to infrastructure preparedness. I mean, they've got to get teachers trained yeah. on how to teach online. They've got to make sure that they cure the broadband gap out there. They've got to make sure that these platforms are secure. And I think that I think that any any school district that hasn't thought about those things or isn't moving toward those things, that they're not going to close their budget gap without having those things addressed because they won't be able to keep the students they have. Parents will not. Their polls are already showing parents are not going to send their kids back to schools where they feel they're not safe. And last thing I'll say, Jeannie, look, you and I have been in the parent choice, school choice world for a long time. I think that one of the impacts of the COVID crisis, and particularly the fact that, that many parents uh, are not going to accept what the government tells them is, is okay for their kids, that they don't feel like it's okay, from a safety point of view, I think we may be on the verge of the biggest explosion of parent choice in history. Because parents are, are now more educated consumers. They're gonna be looking to and see if they don't feel like that the school district has, has created an environment to ensure their kids' safety. If they don't feel like their kids, that the school district isn't ready to teach their kids online you know, or at least some form of fashion or provide or, or, or something beyond just giving the PDFs. And again, some are already doing that. But if parents don't feel that way, then they're going to start looking for alternatives. And doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a virtual online provider, but they're going to be looking for those educational options that will help their kids learn. And asking, why isn't this happening? I heard it's happening elsewhere. And that's the key, which parents don't typically have the luxury of being able to ask because they're busy and they just expect someone else to take care of it. Yep, that's right. Michael, welcome. Yes, hello, hello, Kevin. Great hey, to see you as always. You. Uh, hello, yes. Jeannie. Um, Kevin, I'm gonna try to bundle these. You have, uh, you have spurred uh, a great uh, a creative uh, uh, response here. We have a lot of questions for you. So. Larry Williams writes, Kevin, you wrote an op-ed published April 24th in Washington Examiner about traditional schools having not reached out to K-12. Have things changed uh, for K-12 since that op-ed was published uh, and schools have gone ahead and closed campuses? And if you could couple that with a question from Kim Scott, uh, how well has K-12 uh, served charter school communities? And I will have to ask you to give me Reader's Digest so we can get to all of the questions that have uh, <laughs> been raised for you. Well, what uh, our chairman and CEO, Nate Davis, did, and, and, and I followed up with that, uh, as soon as COVID hit, um, we issued a press release and a link to our website where we offer things for free. Uh, we offered uh, teaching webinars because we know that we're working with Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, we, we, we're working with that university and we offer the only master's in virtual education teaching in the country. The only place you can get a master's in teaching on virtual education online is through Southern New Hampshire University. 
I'm sure that will change in the wake of this. So, but we, because of the studies that we've done, we, we do have some expertise. So we wanted to at least offer free training for teachers. Um, and, you know, many, many school districts are now availing themselves of that, where they, they tune into our webinars and they're, 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 they're working with us. And the other thing uh, we, we offered was access to our, our curriculum and our sort of reading list through Big Universe. We have 17,000 books for elementary school kids that's available that online that we offered uh, to families. And several families and several school districts have availed themselves of that. Uh, so yes, people are beginning to respond uh, largely to a lot of our free offerings, which is what we felt needed to happen and we still feel that way. Uh, I think that the next level of focus for school district leaders and school board reps and superintendents is to really you know, get together and figure out a plan, uh, a solid cogent plan of operation going forward that encompasses the things I talked about earlier that will help, help prepare kids in the future. Uh, and your okay. other question, Michael? Oh, uh, charter schools. How well have they served yes. charter schools? Well, we work a lot with a lot of charter schools in if, of, uh, in the states where we operate. Uh, probably 60, 65 percent of our relationships are with charter school, uh, nonprofit charter school operators where we are the vendor and we provide, you know, everything from soup to nuts, the teachers, the curriculum, the training, the operational financial support, all of that government affairs support, all of that we will do based on our contractual relationship with charter schools. And then uh, a growing number of our relationships are with school districts. I mean, uh, we have a lot of uh, school district relationships around the country where uh, they want to stand up a virtual program and they call on us to put it together and in effect run it. But it's all based on partnerships. Our relationship with school districts and with charter schools is a partnership relationship where we, we, we want to work with those, uh, those folks in a way to benefit kids. Do you, uh, how does K-12 plan on balancing um, or, or measuring uh, loss of learning uh, coming up, which is a critical uh, point on a lot of people's mind? Wow, great question. Um, this is tough because we know that um, even under the best of circumstances, these schools that have had to migrate overnight to an online educational offering, that kids are going to have a growing deficit. And that when kids start in the fall, we know that many kids will have lost some learning time and will be behind. So we're beefing up a lot of things. Our, our uh, SEL focus, uh, we're doing more professional development for teachers on, on how to engage students who suffer from trauma and poverty. And also, how to what kind of supports do we need for teachers Let's say a typical classroom teacher has 50, 60 students in online settings, 70 students, whatever it may be, and that maybe uh, 30 or 40 percent of them uh, are behind. Well, that could grow to 50 to 60 percent this fall. So that means that that teacher is going to need additional support. So we're doing an, an assessment. We're asking our principals to talk, talk with our teachers about what will your needs be to, to, to address the, the, what we know will be additional deficits 
that the average student uh, may have in your classroom. And um, so a lot of it's gonna come down to the professional development training, you know, the uh, uh, tutorial, uh, sort of the uh, extra mentoring time, all those things that we normally do, we just may have to do more of it because we know that the challenges are gonna be increased. Um, quickly. Uh, I like the preschool pre question. Yeah, that's that's and where then, I was going. And then yep. the questions what? we don't get to, we can make sure that we connect we, Kevin and his team yeah. with yes. um, our folks. Because yeah. I know there's also yeah. a couple of comments about teacher education programs and whether or not you are the only one. So I want to see that debate offline, but. Um, yeah, uh, so the, what should online preschool look like, Kevin? Specifically with age groups that cannot independently access and balancing parental responsibilities when in quarantine. Yeah, I think that um, one good thing that we do, <laughs> I'm proud of, we send computers to every kid. Uh, in our program and we also offer training to parents who or parents or the guardian who is a learning coach who helps as, as uh, work with the students they work with the teacher in the classroom and um, preschool is is, uh, is is more challenging but what we do is we make sure we have smaller classes if you will we also make sure that we have uh, smaller blocks of time that the kids are actually online. Um, the way I would uh, sort of characterize it is for elementary school kids, particularly younger kids, you want more actual book time where there's, they're actually being read to or you're reading and less computer time. For the high school kids, you want the reverse. You want more computer time and less book time because you know they're more self-starters and they can they can absorb it better. So we have a whole structure in place for our early grade kids um, to make sure that it isn't just a situation where they're sitting in front of a computer and we're expecting them to to magically learn. You still have to engage in some of the best practices that uh, you know the best practitioners offer in the brick and mortar setting. And Jeannie, we can't let the council, the former council member escape without a political question. Kevin, what are your thoughts on the Biden-Sanders Education Unity Task Force that has no parent representation and absolutely no one with expertise in online and remote learning? Wow. Well, they should, they should <laughs> you know, uh, yes, I agree. They should have those things. Uh, but, you know, I also think my concern about all of this, uh, and I see my young friend Ethan Ashley there, look at him, looking all young and raw <laughs> and ready to change the world. I love it. And uh, Dr. Lewis, nice to meet you virtually. Um, I, I think that uh, you've heard me say this, uh, and I mentioned the, the two New Orleans gentlemen for this reason. You know, we've got to figure out a way to make sure that our education policy is not shaped by the politics of the day. I say this over and over and over again. And when I look at the Biden-Sanders Education Task Force and look at who's on it, that was a political task force. It was not, it was not put in place to reflect what are the best educational practices that work for children. And I, I, I think that 
So I don't want to just go off on a tangent and say that, you know, you need to make sure you have this person on, that person on. But what I do think that the mindset behind our approach to education nationally has been more focused on a political perspective as opposed to a nurturing what's best for kids perspective. And I thought the Republicans were the same thing and the Democrats. So the thing I don't like about that task force is you get a who's who of political education, you know, talking heads, and you put them on there because you're checking the political boxes as opposed to checking the boxes of what makes learning best for kids. And that is a problem. And I think that if, you, if you're thinking about what's best for kids, particularly in this, with this crisis, then you're going to be looking at not just online learning, you're going to look at, you know, what's going on in school district classroom, where would they need support for the growing deficits of kids. And you're going to get people who are at least knowledgeable in those areas who can speak to what the government policy should be to support kids and families that are distressed in, in, in the wake of COVID. So I, I just think that the whole political aspect of education uh, sausage making is fundamentally flawed. And, you know, I think then we're going to continue to have challenges until we, we're honest about that. Such a great uh, ending comment for you, Kevin. But before we let you go, Dr. Lewis and uh, Mr. Ashley, welcome. And I'm going to give you a proper introduction, just a couple of minutes. But as is our custom, we like to bring on our second round guests to interact for a couple of minutes with our first round. And I'm and I'm wondering now that you're, I know a couple of you know each other, you're just meeting. What do you good folks from New Orleans um, have to uh, ask maybe um, Kevin or, um, or pose to him to think about? President, you want to go first? Well, yeah, I'll just, I, I want to just start by saying it's so good to see you, dear brother. Uh, and I'm not surprised by the work that you're leading in this time and in this moment. Uh, I think there is a lot to be said, and you touched on it a little bit about the trauma and poverty piece that plays in the outcomes for young people during this time in districts, uh, thinking about how they're able to respond. Is there more that you would, you know, think to say about the trauma and poverty and how it impacts learning in this moment uh, longitudinally? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And by the way, Ethan, I'm so proud of you, man. I mean, when you're king, can I be on your court, man? Can you just give me, you know, a little, little job doing something for you? Um, so uh, this issue of trauma and poverty and, and how it affects learning is huge. The brain science is on, about this is, is, is clear. Uh, I am pushing all of our schools. I think each and every school in America should be a trauma-informed school. Every staff person in every school should be trauma-informed. What does that mean? There are certain uh, certifications and designations associated with taking classes so that you know how to engage, teach, and work with kids and families that suffer from the trauma associated with poverty and associated with, with, with chemical abuse and challenges and those who are socially and academically at risk. And I think that this is now become an art form. And I think that, you know, I, my goal is to have every one of our school leaders uh, and schools trained in that way. Because studies show 
that kids who come in with these deficits, how you engage them matters in terms of whether or not they stay engaged. So if you have a kid who's two or three grades behind and we, we, we do what we now, what we, we, we do now, we teach and reteach and we test and retest because uh, we saw that kids who come in two or three grades behind, you give them something that's supposed to be a grade level and they don't pass, and you give, say it's an F, then that further destroys their confidence. So we say, oh, no, you got these three right. You know, it's something to build on. You know what, guess what? You know, let's go over this again and let's take it over again. And, you know, it, it sounds simplistic, but when you're talking about kids who, who suffer from the challenges of poverty and trauma, these things and these approaches are huge, especially when their whole lives, they've been told they're failures. And I, I, I am amazed at how many uh, teachers in the classroom who are well-meaning don't understand that even by raising your voice an octave or more or higher than what it should be could send kids away. And uh, so we have to just be aware. And I think that's a huge first step, particularly now, because there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anxiety. That these are the steps we need to engage in to at least make sure that we create an environment so kids are more open to hearing from teachers. Amen. <laughs> Dr. Lewis. Yes, and, and Karen, uh, first of all, it's so nice to meet you virtually here today. Um, this was a very impactful uh, piece that you shared with us uh, this morning. And even as we are looking in the school district to go through the assessment phase, uh, a lot of things that you say just echo and it, it's very like in line with what we're doing here in New Orleans, as far as even our task force uh, is a task force of practitioners, uh, you know, school leaders, principals, parents, students, and the list goes on and on, medical directors, so that we can be prepared because I believe just as you stated earlier about moving forward, uh, this is going to be a blended model no matter what. We're not going back to what was. Uh, but li really want to hear more about the, uh, the schools or district that you've worked with that may have had platforms already in place. The, uh, the deep challenges that they're still recognizing as far as the gaps when it comes down to um, making sure that our students uh, in special education that they're getting the services and support that they need so that we can give them, you know, the education at the end of the day that they so rightfully deserve. So we we'll definitely yeah, want to yeah, hear yeah. more about that. Yeah, and, and, and it's great to meet you virtually as well, Dr. Lewis. I mean, you, you know, my, my heart goes out to you. You've got a tough job, but you're the man for it. So thank you. Uh, the nose, I have a lot of friends and done a lot of work in Louisiana and New Orleans in particular and you've got some great opportunities. Um, I will say that uh, in terms of your, your planning and, and going forward, I think the first order of business is to allay people's fears. There's this image of virtual education that was sort of propped up by people who initially opposed it, uh, that it is, 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 it's not real education. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to create a mindset of what's possible is really important. And I would urge you and your task force, not, not to talk to us per se, but to uh, get examples, uh, look for and ask people examples 
of a effective classroom, virtual classroom experience. And um, we had this math teacher in, in Arizona who a couple of teachers got sick. This was a year or so ago. She ended up having like 150, 200 students in there and they all did well on the test. And I sat in her classroom and I saw how she was able to navigate from screen to screen and how she put on costumes. And it was as entertaining a class as you would ever get in a brick and mortar setting. And I walked away. Now look, I've been doing this a couple of years. And I'm saying, wow, I didn't know it could be so much fun watching someone do this on screen. So I think exciting the possibilities around what is already happening using artificial intelligence, virtuality. I think that exposing people to that and actually seeing kids respond to that, I think is a huge first step. Secondly, I think that in terms of your infrastructure preparedness, um, you know, I, you, you can't, you, you've got to talk to a number of different folks. Now, when we work with school districts, uh, the expression I use, people don't know what they don't know. So, you know, if you haven't had the virtual education experience and you're a superintendent or a school board member and a friend of a friend tells you, you should talk to so-and-so and they, they're good at sales and you get them in there and then the platform breaks, you know, or whatever, it, 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 it crashes. I think that you, you, what we do is we, we try to understand what their existing apparatus looks like and we, we actually have helped prepare to train teachers who work in the school district. More and more we're working to train teachers in the school district, not our teachers, on how to make that transition. Because I don't think, I don't think, I don't think it's going to work. I think the best way for it to work is to have a commitment to train as much as your staff yeah. on online education yeah. possible. You can't rely on other folks. You have to, yes. that's part of the mindset shift. No matter, I, no matter what. No matter what, you got to get them because what happens is you train some of the right folks, they become your internal leaders and advocates. And I think you'll get there. And Kevin, you've been just so fantastic and, and you've, and you've um, both validated and um, concurred with a lot of our previous uh, guests about the importance of training, about just staying on it. Um, thank you for what you're doing. Thank yes. you for such a good steward. Um, and feel free to stay with us uh, and watch in the background. Let me give a proper introduction. Um, so we'll see you later, Kevin. Thanks for listening to this edition of Reality Check. You can subscribe to Reality Check at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and tune in and never miss an episode. Visit us online at edreform.com and follow CER on Twitter at edreform and me, Jeannie Allen. I look forward to exploring the world of education with you and another prominent guest next time. See you then.